other people are holding supplies in the in, in warehouses in the airport saying, no, we can't distribute them because the security's not right. And I'm hearing on the ground people saying security's right. What's not right is that we're not getting the, 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 the material we need to treat people. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a somewhat drenched Southern California. Bob, my co-host, is way on business today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law. And our other sponsor, Clio, it's a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, today we've got a double-barreled topic show. We're going to be doing a show on on Haiti and what lawyers are doing to help. And then there's another big story that just developed yesterday, and it's Mr. Brown Goes to Washington. Scott Brown, who's a political unknown, a Republican, surprisingly enough, won an historic election last night in Massachusetts, largely Democratic state, filling in the seat in Washington left by the late Senator Ted Kennedy. From the Berkshires to Boston, from Springfield to Cape Cod, the voters of this Commonwealth defied the odds and the experts. Tonight, the independent majority has delivered a great victory. Well, not only is this the first time in over 30 years that Massachusetts has elected a Republican in the United States Senate, but the voters in one of the bluest states of all have sent a very loud message to Washington. We have a special guest to talk about this, lawyer and longtime TV and radio journalist Dan Ray from Boston. Dan's been covering news, politics, the courts, and everything in between for over 30 years. And Dan's investigative journalism was responsible for successfully revealing evidence that ultimately proved Joel Salvati innocent of a 1968 Boston murder and freed him from prison and resulted in a ruling against the United States Justice Department for Salvati's wrongful imprisonment. Dan has his own radio talk show called Nightside on WBZ Radio in Boston that's heard around the country and also occasionally is here on Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, Dan, thanks for returning and joining, uh, taking time to join us today. Uh, my, my pleasure, Craig. I, I thought it never rained in Southern California. It doesn't. That's and, what the song uh, we tried... told me. Um, I'm, uh, there's nothing left to believe in anymore. There really isn't. Um, <laughs> and, we, and on top of it, we had a tornado yesterday. Oh, man. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. We are definitely not. And we are not in Kansas and Massachusetts either. The headline in all major newspapers, and I saw it on CNN this morning, what's the message that's being sent here? Well, I think the message from the voters is don't take us for granted. Um, Massachusetts is the bluest of blue states. Every member of our congressional delegation, uh, as of this moment, is Democratic, and uh, it will be such until Scott Brown is sworn in as a uh, newly elected United States senator. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic state. Uh, Scott Brown was a state senator, which meant uh, with 40 members in the state Senate, he represented about 2.5% of the, of the Commonwealth. He's running against a Democratic attorney general who had run statewide before and have been elected in 2006. A month ago, uh, Martha Coakley had a 30-point lead in the polls, but 
Scott Brown, just like uh, I guess the turtle and the hare, uh, kept at it, kept um, moving around, and then they were, a, I thought, a perfect storm of events, which all conspired to work in his favor, and he won the election last night by over 100,000 votes. Well, certainly President Obama came to campaign for Coakley, and uh, I think the message might have been to kind of spank Obama for what's been going on here. I mean, Obama called Scott Brown last night when he won. What do you think the reaction was in the Obama administration, uh, and what's the mandate on the current health care reform package? Well, I think the Obama administration knew probably late last week that this seat was in danger of being lost. It had been a Democratic seat uh, since 1952 when John Kennedy was first elected to the seat. And Ted Kennedy, as you said, had served for 47 years in this particular seat. So this is a seat that for almost 60 years had been in effect in the Kennedy family. That became one of the rallying cries of the campaign. David Gergen had um, asked Scott Brown at a debate a week ago Monday night uh, about running for the Kennedy seat. And Brown turned on a dime and said, it's not the Kennedy seat, it's the people's seat. And that sort of became a crystallizing moment in the campaign. In terms of the president coming in, he put his um, political capital on the line. You know, he went to Copenhagen, didn't come back home with the Olympics for Chicago, campaign in Virginia. New Jersey, and now in Massachusetts. That's a trifecta of losses there. Uh, My understanding is that over the weekend, his aides were were telling him uh, that this race was all but lost, and they certainly knew it, I think, at some point late Monday or or yesterday, uh, that they were going to lose Massachusetts. And it changes everything everywhere. If I'm Blanche Lincoln in Arkansas, if I'm Ben Nelson in Nebraska, if I'm Mary Landrieu uh, in, uh, in Louisiana, I'm waking up this morning and saying, I could be the next Martha Coakley. There's a lot of those out there. And with President Obama coming in and and losing now three times in a row and and really only walking away with a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, is Massachusetts turning Republican or is it swinging more independent? Well, it's, 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 it's becoming more independent. Uh, it was, a, again, called the bluest of blue states. 37% of the registered voters are Democratic. Uh, only about 13% are Republican, but 50% of the voters here in Massachusetts show, hold no formal allegiance to either party. They're un- what we call unenrolled, uh, what people in other states might call independent voters, but they're unenrolled. And I think that Massachusetts sent a message and a wake-up call. By the way, as I said, there was a series of events here that I think conspired to help Scott Brown. Uh, the, 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 the failed plot to blow up the plane going into Detroit on Christmas Day, play to the concerns that a lot of people have about terrorism. This is a guy who is a lot tougher on terrorists. He wants them tried uh, in Guantanamo as opposed to the federal court system. Doesn't His line last night was he wants to spend money uh, basically producing weapons to kill the terrorists, not spend money uh, paying for their lawyers. Uh, so those resonated. Uh, you also had Martha Coakley made a, a number of I guess you could only call them gaffes. On my radio show on Friday night, she seemed to think that Kurt Schilling, um, the the great Red Sox pitcher of of, uh, several seasons, and most particularly 2004, was a Yankee fan. Uh, That's not the sort of issue upon which someone should vote for or against a candidate, but it's the sort of issue that people will remember. They won't know what their position is on cap and trade, but they'll know that she said Kurt Schilling was a Yankee fan. Yeah, and that, that tells us that she's a little bit out of touch with the reality, at least in Boston. Well, Dan, we're running short on time here, but one last quick question for you. Uh, there, apparently, there's been some noise about a legal stall and swearing in Scott Brown. 
real quick, what's yeah, going on? I don't think so. Uh, that that has been discussed uh, in Massachusetts. We have a, a state law which prohibits the Secretary of State from issuing a, a certificate of election for at least ten days following the election. So, and that is to accommodate overseas absentee ballots, often military absentee ballots. So they are all theoretically counted. Uh, this race is not close. I think there's about 100,000 absentee ballots to be counted, and the margin of victory for Scott Brown actually is more than 100,000. And um, e- even if he were to lose every absentee ballot, which he wouldn't, he'd still be elected senator. So Bill Galvin, the Secretary of State up here, is going to give him a, um, a basically a letter saying that he has won the um, the race and is the and is the senator elect and it, it will basically put the ball in Harry Reid's court. Either way, the health care legislation I think at this point has hit a brick wall. When you have senators like Jim Webb from Virginia, Democrat, uh, and others saying we need to now wait until Scott Brown gets here to resume a discussion on this legislation. Nothing's happening on health care until Scott Brown gets to Washington. And then, unless the, unless the Democrats can peel off a Susan Collins or an Olympia Snow. And plus, I, I think Massachusetts has kind of voted on health care. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board and, and come up with something significantly different. Yeah. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank Your you, political Craig. news insights are really legendary in Boston, and we're really thrilled that you could take a few minutes with here on Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can hear more with Dan Ray tonight and every night on his radio show, Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ Radio, 1030. All they have to do is go to WBZ.com, and they can listen anywhere in the country. Fantastic. Well, okay. I'm sure you'll get a lot of listeners out of this show, so thanks Great. for being with us, Dan. Thanks, Craig. Bye-bye. Let's change gears now to our other big story, the situation in Haiti after the devastating earthquake. Another aftershock today, uh, 6.1 on the Richter scale, and causing more people to flee. The enormous response by the medical profession, and now the question of what lawyers are doing to help. Uh, According to the American Bar Association and Thomson Reuters, they're getting the word out on relief efforts. The ABA has a call to action to assist in relief efforts through donations. And Thompson launched the Thompson Reuters Foundation, which is a first-of-its-kind information service, allowing people of Haiti to receive free, critical information online in their hour of need. And the question remains, what else can the legal community do? So for our first guest today, we've invited human rights lawyer and activist attorney Brian Concanon Jr. Brian is the director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, promoting human rights in Haiti by litigating cases in Haitian, U.S., and international courts documenting human rights violations, and working with grassroots activists in Haiti, North America, and throughout the world. Brian lived and worked in Haiti from 1995 through 2004, so he's got some firsthand information. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Brian Concanon. Well, thanks for having me, Craig. It's great to be with you. And we'd like to introduce our next guest, Ben Hemingway. Ben serves as the Deputy Director of International Operations for the International Medical Corps, based in Washington, D.C. In this role, Ben oversees the day-to-day operations of field programs and is a key member of the team overseeing the response to the Haitian earthquake. Previously, he was the Senior Desk Officer for North and Central Africa. Ben also spent time as the International Medical Corps' Country Director in Chad, and he's been on the ground and has experience supporting operations in South and West Darfur. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ben Hemingway. Craig, thanks for having us come on and uh, giving us the opportunity to talk about International Medical Corps' work in Haiti. Well, let's give our, our listeners a little bit of background on that, Ben, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, what does the International Medical Corps do in Haiti? 
Um, the International Medical Corps is primarily an emergency relief and uh, development organization focused on medical response and uh, health systems rebuilding. Um, in Haiti, we responded immediately. Within three hours, we had staff on the, on planes on their way to Haiti through the Dominican Republic. Um, it took us about 20 hours to actually, 20 hours after the uh, earthquake, to actually get our staff into Port-au-Prince and begin providing emergency response. Um, at this time and since uh, since the earthquake, we've been providing basically trauma care and emergency stabilization services in uh, both the university hospital and in some makeshift uh, hospitals and clinics that we've set up in some of the affected areas. Um, it, most of the injuries, as you can imagine, we're seeing at this point are orthopedic surgical cases, lots of crushed limbs and uh, um, head fractures and other types of injuries that require amputation or um, some immediate uh, medical services such as uh, surgery. And uh, also at this time, we're, we're very concerned about the continued lack of access to adequate food and uh, clean water sources. So there's a real, a real threat of uh, outbreaks of communicable diseases, um, as we usually see in this type of uh, post-disaster post, uh, situation. Well, Brian, you're somewhat aware of the situation in Haiti with doctors and nurses on the ground trying desperately in the fairly horrible conditions to treat those injured in the quake. What, what are you hearing now? That, that the situation is desperate, that, that the, the, the uh, type of makeshift hospitals that, that uh, Ben described, as well as the, the more institutional places like the, like the, the state hospitals, they're being overwhelmed, but they're, they're, they're getting better. I mean, everybody's reporting every day that they get a little bit more supplies and a little bit, there, there appears to be a lot of doctors on the ground. Um, the, the main problem most people that I'm talking to have is, is having supplies, which is a, a bit of a concern because a lot of the supplies are there and they're not getting out because of uh, security concerns that don't appear to be justified. I think a lot of people are worried about riots breaking out, but they haven't broken out and I think the aid needs to get out much quicker. What, the question that, that lawyers are, are asking, at least the lawyers that I know are asking, is what can we do to help? I think in the very short term, what lawyers can do is, is get out of the way of, of, of Ben's people and, and other people on the ground. We can't set bones and we can't, uh, can't pull people out of rubble. So what we are doing in, in, in our, our work is we're putting together an organization called the Lawyers Earthquake Response Network. And we can't, you know, we can't sue someone to, to, to fix a bone, but, but there will be a lot of legal work that will be need to be done in the coming weeks, coming months, and in the coming years. Uh, there's, there's, Immediately, there's a need for to do immigration work. On Friday, the Obama administration uh, announced that it was granting temporary protected status to Haitians who are already in the United States, which gives them uh, the ability to stay and work for another 18 months. There's a, there's, there's a few other potential immigration uh, responses to, to the earthquake that's going to allow people to Haitians to, to be here and to be safe, and we're going to need some some work on that. There'll also be a legal response in Haiti. People are going to need to to have lawyers to help them get back into their houses. Uh, there's also a broader issue that that the most of the mortality from this is is from people who lived in the slums in substandard housing on on slopes that were too steep to to hold people, and the. The, the, they, they, the people who lived there knew that it was unsafe when they moved in there, but they had no other safer place to, to put their family, so they did the best they could. And a lot of them uh, ended up dying as a result of that. One of the things we're going to be fighting for in Haiti is for fair, safe housing for, for Haitians, uh, and we're going to need some legal support for that. Well, Ben, what are the 
the doctor's doing that uh, you're on the ground with in Haiti, and I understand that there have been some more on the way with trouble getting into Port-au-Prince. What's, what's the latest on that? Right. At this point, we have uh, over 70 doctors and emergency response experts in country. The real challenge all along has been logistical access. As was mentioned uh, in the press in the early days, it was very difficult to, to get anything into the airport. There's only one airstrip. Um, there was some tension over who was actually in control um, between the military and civilian authorities. And also the, the land routes from the Dominican Republic uh, overland had been cut off in the first day or two because of landslides. So it, it took a long time to get, uh, to get those access uh, points restored. At this point, we're, the real challenge is, is, as was mentioned earlier, um, access to the needed supplies. Um, there are a lot of doctors and nurses and uh, emergency response experts in country but uh, to get the amount of commodities needed to provide for up to 3 million um, disaster-affected uh, popul- beneficiaries is just, uh, it's massive. And uh, until, those a- until the ports are open and you can get large container ships in, we're really going to be um, kind of stuck with what we can either bring in on, hel- on helos or what our staff can bring in on their back. Um, another big issue is just the lack of electricity and clean water in, in, the, in the city. As you can imagine, we're running... Um, field hospitals, sometimes outside without any cover at night, trying to do surgery without uh, without any lights or um, reliable access to even um, um, generators to for emergency um, needs. There's a real lack of fuel for vehicles. So if you need to transport somebody after surgery or to a surgical ward um, from another part of the city, there's basically no way for uh, for people to get around. So really, it's a it's a logistical nightmare at this point. There's so much so much more that needs to be done until you're actually going to get the full brunt of the of the assistance effort um, to bear on the needs of the population. Well, Brian, there's been some reports of some lawlessness in the streets in Haiti, uh, U.S. military forces patrolling the streets, apparently trying to turn chaos into order. What's been the Haitians' response to the rule of law and the lack of uh, any kind of, uh, you know, the so much collapsing in their society? You know, I don't know if, if, if what Ben's, Ben's hearing from his people on the ground, but what I'm hearing from my people on the ground is that chaos is absolutely not the problem. Um, I'm getting generally... The people I talk to are getting, sending me emails at night and describing their days, and they're saying over and over again how amazed they are that the response, the patience of Haitians to this response. That these are people that have gone a week with almost no water, with no food, and people are suffering injuries, and but they're still patiently co- collaborating with with the people in the hospitals. One one example was someone who sent me an email last night, and they they were at a field hospital set on a soccer stadium that that. Uh, that had been overwhelmed, but all of a sudden, somehow, they got through all their patients, and they had five extra beds. And so they sent this group out. They said, "Find f- find us five more patients." And they went to a place where there were a lot of injured people. And you'd expect, if the if the, if the reports of chaos were true, you'd expect people to you know to mob them and at at, at worst steal their car, but at best put a hundred people in where five people there were five spots. But instead, the people said they approached one person who who looked injured, and they said, "Do you need medical treatment?" And he said, "Yes, I do." But there's somebody over there, and he pointed to someone else and said, "She needs." medical treatment more. And that person said, well, I think there's someone else who needs it more. And this group of people who are all suffering and all hungry and all thirsty and all homeless, they made a collective decision of who amongst those people were needed at the most. And they, in, in very orderly fashion, five people were, were loaded onto the van and sent in. And, and the, 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 the talk of chaos, you know, there's been, I, I've been looking at the media and I've yet to see, I've heard the word chaos repeated time and time again in riots and violence. I've yet to see anybody come up with any proof of that. Um, I think it's more, much more, the, the violence is, exists in the 
predictions of the media and not in the in the reality of the ground. And it, but it does have an impact on the ground because it's from what I'm hearing, the security concerns are stopping aid. There's that they've been sending in soldiers instead of doctors, and that's. Well, that's one of the, as Ben mentioned, the airport's been clogged up. Part of that is because they're, they put in 10,000 soldiers. Some of those people are doctors and nurses, and, and they should definitely be going in. But a lot of them are foot soldiers responding to a security problem that doesn't really exist. They're clogging the airport. Other people are holding supplies in, the, in, in warehouses in the airport saying, no, we can't distribute them because the security's not right. And I'm hearing on the ground people saying security's right. What's not right is that we're not getting the, 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 the material we need to treat people. Ben, are you hearing the same thing? Yeah, I think that the short answer to that is that uh, our, our efforts are definitely not being impacted by security concerns. I mean, the, back, the background and the historical security challenges in Haiti are certainly a backdrop to the entire relief effort. But uh, we're certainly encountering lots of cooperation and willingness to help in any way necessary from the affected communities that we're serving. Um, it's always a dilemma when you start talking about uh, bringing in military forces into a humanitarian assistance effort. But uh, at this point, I think uh, most of us are are quite glad to see more um, military forces arriving. We need them to to move around, uh, you know, heavy equipment. We need them to airlift things into some of the remote sites. As we mentioned, the airport's a real bottleneck. So once things get to the airport, the only way things are going to get out of that airport is if uh, somebody brings in a helicopter or puts it on the back of a military truck and brings it out to some of the remote areas. Most of the effort thus far has been focused on Port-au-Prince, but we know this is going to affect some of the outlying areas as bad or or perhaps even worse. And so we're definitely going to continue to rely more and more on the military assets that are there from all of the contributing nations to uh, help the, the aid get out to the people that need it most. So it's, uh, it's, always, uh, it's always a conundrum, but I think at this point, um, security isn't a, big, isn't a big concern, and the coordination between civil and military authorities is, at this point is, is going pretty well. Well, Ben and Brian, we need to take a break for just a moment. When we return, we'll talk more about what lawyers can do to help in Haiti. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Curran at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Attorney Brian Kincannon, Jr. He's the director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. And Ben Hemingway, the deputy director of operations for the International Medical Corps. Well, one of the things that uh, we've heard, at least, that um, many families have started the adoption process with children from Haiti, only now to find their paperwork, they're destroyed. Brian, what's going to happen? I think 
those people will probably have to be patient. The the Haitian adoption procedure has always been a very slow one. It's a it's a combination a combination of three things. One, uh, a government trying to legitimately protect its citizens from exploitation, which does happen in adoptions, by making people jump through the hoops. Um, a second part is just that the the the, the system is all Haitian Haitian systems are, are pretty slow and the and, and 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 inefficient and the third is i think there is some corruption within the system where some people slow things down in order to in order to uh, create a market for bribes and so you've got a system that was slow to begin with and and as you mentioned a lot of the paperwork is lost and the the government's going to going to be very stre- stretched thin doing doing responding to the earthquake um, i don't know if the if the, if the Haitian government is going to expedite things, I expect the U.S. will. I mean, there's, there was already a plane load of, of of adopted kids who were who had already their adoptions had already gone through on the Haitian side, and they were given expedited uh, parole into into the U.S. And I expect more types of those kinds of things on the U.S. end. On the Haiti end, it's just it's really hard to tell. There's just uh, there's there's so much uncertainty with the government, and they're really just trying to get back on their feet to to give some kind of a basic response to the earthquake. That I think that that the uh, that the issue of adoptions will probably be on a, on a back burner. Well, the Red Cross has put up a fairly massive response in Haiti, and I'd like to mention for our listeners that they can donate to that effort right now from the Legal Talk Network, uh, legaltalknetwork dot com. But Ben and Brian, what uh, if people want to donate? Where can they go to donate to your uh, groups? Well, on 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 our. Uh, website you can give right on our website www.haitijustice.org. Um, I do, I do uh, want to be clear. We're not doing disaster relief, but we are doing what we call disaster prevention by by trying to decrease the the situation, the, the conditions that make Haitians um, that make, make Haitians vulnerable to these kinds of natural disasters. And we are doing a legal response, so that's not going to be something that's going to uh, give someone food or water or, or fix a broken bone in the next in the next week, but it is over the course of the weeks and months being part of the solution. Um, we we have a couple we have a couple partners on the ground that we've that we've recommended that are doing emergency relief and one of them is is Partners in Health. Uh, their website is is pih.org uh, based in based in Boston. And uh, another partner that we've been working on is the Haiti Emergency working with is the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund and their website is www.haitiaction.net. Ben the easiest way to donate to International Medical Corps right now is to text the word Haiti to 85944, and that'll make a $10 donation to our relief efforts. You can also go directly to our website, which is www.imcworldwide.org, and uh, learn more about our response there and also make a donation to our efforts. Well, some United States corporations have been responding with relief in Haiti. Uh, Brian, what would you recommend to in-house counsel to be doing with their corporations to uh, speed some help and some relief? Well, certainly we've been talking with people who, who've, who've got working for companies that can do uh, can provide emergency assistance, and, and we're obviously encouraging them that this is the time for generosity. So companies that have access to, to transportation, to planes, and to medical supplies, they should be doing it. Um, in the long run, uh, we're having for our, for our lawyers emergent, lawyers earthquake response network. Uh, we've got we've got law professors, we've got big firm lawyers, small firm lawyers. People don't need a particular expertise in Haiti and human rights or in disaster response to join our network. And if people are interested in joining the the lawyers earthquake response network, I would suggest they send me an email at uh, Brian B R I A N at I J D H dot O R G, and we'll we'll put you on the mailing list for that. 
Great. Well, Ben, we've been hearing some stories about signs of life people found a week after the the uh, earthquake and still alive. Um, we, you know, we would like to always have hope. W- what are you hearing about some some uplifting stories in the area? Yeah, the resiliency of uh, of the human spirit and uh, sometimes the human body, I think, can can surprise us. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, so much focus has been uh, has been put on Port-au-Prince, and I think now many organizations and the and the international community in general is starting to get out to some of the other areas um, further up the coast from Port-au-Prince. And in, in these areas, you're seeing communities come together and basically take care of each other and try to pull. Um, victims out of out of the rubble in in areas where the UN hasn't been able to access. You haven't seen these massive uh, relief efforts with large heavy equipment uh, take place yet because the, they just had, didn't have access to these communities. And the more that we get out to these communities, the more you see that resiliency within the community of people really pulling together and caring for each other. Um, we've all been uh, touched by some of the stories we've seen in the press over the last day or two of of people still being found alive in, in, in buildings and being able to, uh, to be recovered. Um, certainly, the, the longer that this goes on, the, the chances for that to continue to happen um, grow uh, increasingly desperate. But um, in, any t- in any of these disaster, post-disaster situations, I think my colleagues in this industry are always, are always touched by the ability of people to take care of their own and the ability for the ability and willingness of communities to not wait for that handout or not wait for that uh, assistance to come from afar, but really to pull together and take care of each other. And Brian, what are you hearing that uh, is good coming out of this disaster? I think there's there's you know there's there's the, there's opportunities to rebuild Haiti better. This has happened with many with many uh, cities that have had had kind of had, had huge disasters. I mean, there's obviously the, the negative side, but there's there are some opportunities. And I think it's very important that that as Haiti gets built, rebuilt, it it's done in a in a safe way and that you're not just putting the uh, the same houses back up in on the same slopes. And that was called that was really called into uh, into light this morning. There was another aftershock of a six point aftershock um, that that came today, even though the most seismologists had predicted no more aftershocks. And I think some seismologists have said that there's that the earthquake actually could create a, a risk of, uh, of an increased of risk of another earthquake even closer to Port-au-Prince. So I think it's very important that is hate that that Port-au-Prince is rebuilt in a, in a systematic way that incorporates planning to reduce vulnerability to the next quake. Well, thank you both. Um, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, but what we'd like to do at this point is get wrap up and get your final thoughts and uh, your contact information. So, Ben, let's start with you. The best way to contact me is through our directly through our website at www.imcworldwide.org. And again, we have a portal portal running there for your listeners. They can uh, keep up to date not only on IMC's efforts, but on the efforts of the international community in Haiti and continue to stay abreast of the needs in Haiti. And uh, I think it's important that uh, all of your listeners and all of us stay appraised of the situation, the needs in Haiti. Far too often, um, shortly after these kind of emergencies occur, uh, we they slip off the front page of the uh, press and off our television screens, and we forget about them. And we all know that uh, Haiti has been beset by decades of poverty and natural disasters, and this is going to take a, a long-term commitment by the international community to really bring some relief to the long-suffering people of Haiti. I'll, 
second what Ben has to say. I think that's vitally important that that you know, we we keep having these conversations about about Haiti's natural disasters and whether it's a hurricane, it's an earthquake, and what we really need to do is to build a Haiti that's not that vulnerable. And part of that is extending our attention span. That even the international press corps will be gone in in a, in a few weeks, but uh, people do need to keep up keep up with Haiti. That's one thing that you can do with us. We have a program called the Half Hour for Haiti that we send out an action alert about uh, two a month that, that, that lets people know what's going on about Haiti. And to sign up for that, you can, you can, send, uh, you can sign up for that on our website, which is haitijustice.org, or you can send me an email to brian, B-R-I-A-N, at ijdh.org. And I'd happy to also uh, to, to get people who are interested in joining the Lawyers Earthquake Response Network. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to thank our both of our guests, Attorney Brian Kincannon, Jr., Director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, and Ben Hemingway, the Deputy Director of Operations for International Medical Corps. And, and for our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And they're available on iTunes as well. Be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.